This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Medicare for All is one of the ideas being proposed by both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as the new path we should take here in the United States around the health care system. But there are many people looking at whether this is the right idea. Numerous aspects of the plan are being focused on, including the cost, both for patients and doctors, the delivery of health care, and more. Dr. Zico Emanuel is the chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy here at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as professor of healthcare management at the Wharton School. He was also one of the experts who helped craft the Affordable Care Act, and he joins us here in studio. Great to see you. It's been a while. Nice to be back. Thank you. Uh, so give us your thoughts on the concept uh, of Medicare for All, and, and you know, would it be something that we need to consider at some point? So I, I think there are, there are a few points to make. The first one is the sort of criticism you hear, it's unaffordable. That is the wrong criticism. Okay. Um, I think uh, Elizabeth Warren is very right on this when she says, look, we're about to spend $52 trillion over the next 10 years on health care. Medicare for all is going to come in slightly under that. Don't tell me it's unaffordable. The real issue is not can we pay for it. We are going to pay $52 trillion for health care. The question is who pays, how much of that comes from the private sector, employers, employees, and how much of that comes from the federal state governments. Right now, it's about 50-50, slightly more from the private sector than federal and state governments, but we have a substantial amount of what you'll call it private sector. The Medicare for All plan is, well, it's all going to go through the federal government, um, and you know, lots of countries do that, and not just Britain or Canada or those socialistic countries. The Netherlands, Germany send the money centrally, and then it gets dispersed out to private entities. Um, so you could do it that way. The challenge there is, and this is the challenge I think a lot of people are raising, is uh, from a policy standpoint, that's a lot of money to go through the federal government. It does require raising taxes. Um, and you saw in uh, uh, um, Elizabeth Warren's plan, you know, she makes businesses uh, what we call in the government maintenance of effort. Whatever you're paying now, basically, you got to continue to pay. She, It's slightly less under her plan. The states, whatever you're paying now, both on Medicaid and also on for your state employees, you have to continue to pay. That still leaves a gap because she doesn't want middle class people to pay, pay premiums, deductibles, or co-pays. That's about $11 trillion over 10-year gap. That's a substantial amount of money. It's about a trillion a year. Um, and so she has to fill it in. She fills it in a number of ways, cutting administrative costs, cutting drug costs, reducing hospital payments to 110% of Medicare. Um, and then she raises taxes. She raises taxes on the ultra well-off people with wealth of $50 million or more and billionaires. She raises it on closing the tax gap, mm -hmm. the difference between what people uh, actually owe if they calculated correctly and what they actually pay. Uh, um, and so uh, she taxes financial transactions, a penny on every $10 financial transaction. Now, you can have a lot, you know, that's for the tax policy experts. I'm not a tax policy expert. Yeah. Uh, there are, you know, you might be skeptical, well, 110% of Medicare, that's probably not a, the right place to be. 120%, you'd probably have no real pushback from most of the health policy people, especially if you do have a reduction in administrative costs and a reduction in drug costs. So those are the policy issues. And then there's, of course, the political issue. Could you even get this passed? And most people who are in politics, and me included, it's like, no way. <laughs> um, yeah. Because, if you look, we had 257 Democrats in the House, and we 
just barely made passing the Affordable Care Act at 218. So the idea that you're going to pass something even bigger than the Affordable Care Act, even more transformative, um, yeah, it's going to be really hard. And then we're not going to have 60 votes in the Senate. So how are you going to get it through? So the, then we, on two of those points, you mentioned about the, reducing the cost uh, drug prices. That's something that obviously a lot of people have talked about in, in the last few years. It's an important piece to trying to rein in some of the costs on health care. But you also talk about the administrative costs. So talk more, if you can, about those two elements. And, and is it possible to be able to, to really change the path of where those two areas have gone in recent years. So let me broaden it out to three areas. So every health policy expert like myself says, look, if you want to control costs, there are at least three main areas you have to look at. Drug costs, hospital costs to the private sector, and administrative costs. All of them are out of whack. All of them are ballooned. Now, uh, we are going to have to reduce drug costs. There's a bipartisan majority, Republican voters, Democrats, way high. How we do that negotiations, uh, Medicare or the government setting a price ceiling, that is not fully determined. My preference personally is we should have negotiations informed by value-based pricing. How much health benefit does the drug give? The more health benefit, the higher the price of the drug legitimately so, but we do have to have caps. The idea that we now have $2 million drugs seems a little crazy, even if they are cures, uh, given the fact that the median income from a per- for a person with a BA, lifetime median income for a person with a BA in America. Lifetime income is like $2.4 million. Mm-hmm. You're then going to charge $2 million for a single drug? Yeah. That just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute economically. Um, so I think we, we need to rethink that. When you think about hospital costs on the Medicare, Medicaid side, those are set by the government. Yeah. It's the private side that they've just gone you know, stratospheric. Uh, RAN, recent RAND study showed that on the private side, uh, hospitals are charging, on average, 240% of Medicare rates. That seems way out of whack. There are lots of hospital monopolies. Consolidation has led to price increases, not quality increases as claimed. Um, we do have to rein in hospital prices. Um, and wh- how you do that, and again, what you do, whether you put a cap on those prices, uh, whether you say hospitals can't do balance billing above 150% of Medicare or 120%. Something has to be done. Then when you talk about administrative costs, you know, something like 12% of private sector uh, spending is for administration. Why is that? And again, I think the insurance companies get a bad rap here. A lot of it can trace back to employers. Every employer wants their own special plan for their own employees. That creates an administrative burden. It's not the same for everyone. You go to most foreign countries, again, Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, um, it's the same program. You've got to have the same, you cover the same things, you have the same co-pays, it's the same program. We're not going to get to one program for 330 million Americans, but we could get to, let's call it, five to ten different packages. You pick one that you like. And that would reduce administrative costs a lot in this country. Which plays into, obviously, partly what you had and others had done with the Affordable Care Act in looking at you know, a, a, a few choices to be able to gain the coverage that, that you really need. So that, to a degree, it seems like it is a play off of what you and others had done with the Affordable Care Act, right? Exactly. We, we, ne- we said, look, here are ten essential benefits. You have to cover them. Here are, you know, silver, gold, platinum uh, tiers. Um, 
some states like California have actually restricted and said, all right, in the silver tier, here's the deductibles, co-pays you can have, gold tier, et cetera. Um, I do think we need to probably push more in that direction, mm-hmm. just have a few – uh, variations, five or ten. Uh, we have that in what's called Medigap. Those are the plans that are sold privately to Medicare recipients to cover the co-pays. Um, we narrowed a sort of wild west down to just a few, uh, ten different programs. I think that would reduce administrative costs a lot. You also need a clearinghouse, so all of the bills look the same, use the same forms, and we don't have a lot of variation. Would the insurance industry be behind a move like that? Because I, I, when you say that, my first thought is that would be a consolidation of what has become a, a, a monstrous entity being the insurance companies. Uh, so here's the secret. Again, it's not the insurance industry that creates that variation. It's employers. Every employer saying sure. they want their own thing. Yeah. The insurance industry would be behind it. So I talked to people at United, and they said, listen, a few years ago we tried to do this, to create these sort of standardized programs for our employers, and the employers revolted. It's like Mm. we lost business on that. So, you know, you need someone else to come in and say, no, we're not having every different employer, you know, Under Armour, Nike, Adidas, they each have their own plan. We're going to have more uniformity here. And that has the virtue that insurance companies have less administration, hospitals have less administration, doctor offices have less administration. If we could bring the administrative costs down for all of them, that's really tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Is there – and I will use Europe as an example here, but are there examples – of various countries. You mentioned Netherlands, Germany, all, mm-hmm. all these different entities. Britain obviously has their, their own version of, uh, of what they're doing. But are there elements of those plans that potentially would fit perfectly for the United States? Perfectly is too strong, okay. but yeah. uh, yes. Fit well. Yes. Japan has a, uh, they have 1,600 insurance companies, so they have even more than wow. we do. <laughs> yes. Wow is right. Oh but they do have a central, uh, uh, they have a central clearinghouse. They have a standardized system, so their administrative costs are low. You know, just think about ATMs. Why do ATMs work? Right? Why can I take my Citibank ATM and go to a Wells Fargo bank and get the money? They can see things. Because the Fed standardized what they have to ask, the information that has to be transferred. And that standardization is important. Yeah. Um, we need the same thing on healthcare. Right now, each insurance company and each plan has a different uh, format for the claims, a different piece of information they're asking for and they're requiring. If we standardize it, and one of the reasons Medicare has lower rates is they have one standard form. Everyone's using the same form no matter where they are. That helps. And we can do that if the federal government mandated that kind of thing. So I think, you know, the Fed could do it for ATMs and we need the same kind of thinking on hospital claims. Quickly shifting uh, in about a minute or so, um, you were involved, you did a piece a a while back talking about not wanting to live past 75. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're in a time now where there are more and more people that are living longer, longer lives right now. Quickly, if you can, why, why did you say that? Why, why do you believe you don't want to live past 75? Well, uh, so what makes a meaningful life? That's what I was asking myself. You've got three components. Meaningful work. Are you actually doing work that's meaningful, adding to society? And people 
you know, accuse me of elitism here. You know, that's for professors or artists, but it's not. It's for, you know, I have a woodworker friend. You know, meaningful work is creating a beautiful piece of, of, of uh, furniture or, yeah. you know, a mechanic, really tuning up that car beautifully, making it work. There are lots of people who have meaningful work. You know, I, I recently saw a story about a bus driver and, you know, sort of creating community for his students on the bus. Yeah. There are lots of places of meaningful work. Meaningful relationships, having close relationships, relationships not just with your family, but community, et cetera. And then there's the what I call fun, the other things you do in life, whether it's religion or politics or travel. Um, now, if you have too much fun, if that's all that's dominating your life, that's really a boring life, actually. Sure. You need the meaningful relationships and work. And part of what happens as you get older is those things begin to go away, the meaningful work. After 75, there's not that many True. people. Yeah. Only outliers yeah. are really working past 75. And meaningful relationships becomes hard to maintain them or people die. And so that was the thinking behind my philosophy. And I wanted to make sure that I mentioned, you are now a chocolatier. You are in business of making <laughs> chocolate right now. Yes. Uh, so part of my fun is I'm very invested in making high-end uh, dark chocolates. Uh, the latest chocolate I made is the Zeke Bar uh, 2. Uh, with beans from Ecuador, um, and I partner with a chocolatier in Missouri, and we make the bar. And uh, I can't announce which award it won, but it won a very big, important award. Askinosi is the name of the company? That's right. If you just put Zeke Bar in, uh, I'm uh, usually the third thing after the drinking establishment, <laughs> the chocolate bar comes up. Zeke, great to see you. Thank you for your insight. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.